Walk in the Breaking Doctrine, presented to you by the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate at the Combined Arms Center at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. The views expressed here are those of the individual and do not represent the views of the Combined Arms Center, U.S. Army, or U.S. Government. Welcome to Breaking Doctrine, a U.S. Army Combined Arms Center podcast on emerging doctrine and the Army's vision of warfare. As any author will tell you, writing a book is hard work. In fact, here at CAD, it's a team effort to produce most of our manuals. And fun fact, these things don't include the names of the authors, the actual individuals who write these books, anywhere in the front matter of any manual. We all bring experiences to every job that we do in the Army, and doctrine writing here at CAD is no different. And that's why I'm letting my guests today introduce themselves and tell you about the role that they had in producing one of the most significant books that we do produce here at CAD, FM30 Operations. And then we're going to talk a little bit about the work that we've done over the last two years to make a book and to ultimately bring a book out to the Army. So without any further ado, let me introduce the panel, but more importantly, let the panel introduce themselves. Thank you. Uh, Lieutenant Colonel Eric Gilgey. Um, I am an engineer officer and I've been the team lead for FM3 and the, re the rewrite for FM30 uh, since um, its inception two and a half years ago. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Jim Chester. I was the lead author for the competition crisis leadership chapters and the appendices on uh, command and support relationships and uh, contested deployments. And I got here just after the writing team formed, so I've been here for a little over two years. Uh, Matt Farmer, I'm a retired uh, infantry lieutenant colonel and uh, contributed to uh, four of the chapters. Good morning. Uh, Brian Goings, retired lieutenant colonel, military intelligence. Uh, my role in this was to serve as the lead author and integrator for the threat material that you see in the manual. And I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and yeah, I actually did, along with doing a podcast on occasion for here at Breaking Doctrine, I was also a contributor for the Maritime Chapter, and I participated in writing the Principles of War Appendix at the tail end of the book. So, I'm going to lead off right now with Eric Yu in specific, because what I really want to ask a question, and I'm sure a lot of people do, is the lead author of FM30, and also the OLD chief, can you kind of give us a little bit of background about how you were first notified that 3.0 was happening in your portfolio and that it's time for a new version? Well, that's, that's, actually, that's uh, interesting in the sense that uh, I, when I was contacted, um, when I was still in battalion command and uh, starting to look at my next, um, where I was going to go post-command, uh, and I was in the AIM cycle, just like everybody else. I, uh, the director of CAD, the Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate here, reached out to me, um, Colonel uh, Creed at that time, Colonel Creed, um, and asked if I would want to come and uh, work for him here at CAD as one of his division chiefs, and that they were looking for somebody to lead the effort to rewrite FM30, because that was on the, they were not, had not started that yet, um, it was on the horizon and was something that they knew that that was going to be a big deal, um, you know, very soon. And that was 2019 time frame, um, end of 2019. So I kind of knew that before I got here uh, that uh, this was going to be the, the big thing, among many other things, as the uh, chief of the operational level doctrine, um, the OLD chief, that uh, would be in my portfolio. Um, so that being said, then kind of, you know, my, my arrival here got a little bit delayed um, because of all of the things going on in the spring of 2020. Um, but I did get here, um, you know, did my PCS here from uh, Fort Riley. And the day after I signed off of leave, we had our first, um, uh, I found out like a day before that, that uh, the first meeting um, with uh, the CAC uh, CG, um, Lieutenant General uh, or General Rainey um, at that time um, we were going to sit down with him and get our get initial guidance and have it the first there had been some discussions going on as to you know what things should be focused on within the next FM30 but uh, that was going to be the first actual um, uh, specific guidance or um, discussion 
with the CG um, on on his thoughts on what we should be doing with uh, FM3O. And that was kind of a daunting thing coming in uh, um, and to focus on such a, you know, a, a, a book that uh, had such um, uh, a big impact across the entire army. So, you know, FM3O uh, is really the capstone doctrine that drives the cha- drives change, it drives modernization, it drives um, leader development, um, everything across the dot mil PF really when it comes to uh, um, um, our army. So it's that capstone doctrine that you know drives change across all other doctrine. So it you know really sets that that sets that stage. So it was it was a bit daunting that this was going to be uh, something that uh, I was going to be responsible for and working on uh, as the lead for that. So the the day after I signed in, we are signed off a of leave sat down with General Rainey and got his his some of his initial thoughts and some of it wasn't necessarily a directed guidance it was more it was certainly a discussion um, but that session and then some follow-on sessions over the next couple months really kind of formulated some points that he wanted to get across to us um, uh, that really then led into some of the things that um, are in 3o uh, so he really wanted us to look at you know how we organized the the book and uh, so one of the big things that you know the um, what developed into the strategic context um, competition below arm conflict crisis and arm conflict uh, that that was part of some of our initial discussions with the CAC CG um, that he wanted to organize the book around that um, and that that was you know one of the, the features and th- those aligned with you know some of the ideas that were in the 2017 um, FM3O as well. Uh, so instead of being, you know, a, a, arranging the book around the strategic roles of the army, we were going to focus on uh, on competition, crisis, and conflict, and laying out operations as they, as we saw as to how units should, what units should do, how operations should be conducted during each of those um, contexts. Although initially we didn't know what we really wanted to call them or characterize them. Um, and they developed into context. Um, he, he, you know, we really wanted to focus on the human element, you know, the nature of war, um, you know, the will to fight, uh, you know, how that impacts your operational environment. And we kind of, you'll see, you see that as how that kind of developed into the book. But that was really part of our, some of our initial discussions as well. Um, Theater strategic level of warfare. We haven't talked a, a huge amount about that um, with the book, but that was really, you know, that that establishing the theater strategic level of war um, was something that was found, to, you know, that we thought was important. The CG thought was really important that we wanted that he wanted us to look at as to how you know the levels of war and if there should be a theater strategic level of war, um, and then the elements of combat power so uh so i was actually i, I remember when that happened because that was about the time yeah. like matt you began to show up and we were working on as some people might not realize when you're developing doctrine inevitably you get pulled into issue papers and white papers and the idea is to to source out some of these significant ideas to a community of interest which is overwhelmingly here in, in both CAD, but also in a wider doctrine community in the wider army, handful of subject matter experts. And that's I like the elements and the dynamics of combat power and evolving that model, that was like a firm debate between you and I. So what was it like to get pulled into the into the writing team? Um it was good. Um yeah, I'm trying to re- I mean um, that one now that debate was like two years old. Like I don't know if I can even remember all the um, the issues behind it, but I, what I remember is ultimately we realized the direction we were going with the definition of combat power was pretty much the same as what the joint definition was, and when and I, Eric kind of pointed that out, and and so that was I think a helpful um, situation. Yeah, I mean one the the big thing that uh, you know that that we wanted that that we were told to look at was how we separated you know. Um, that we didn't want to stay wed to the warfighting functions. That combat power 
we needed to focus more on its destructive aspects since we were the focus was large-scale combat operations um, that was going to continue on from the uh, um, as our focus for readiness for the army and uh, the focus of our capstone doctrine and so we wanted to focus on those destructive and disruptive elements of combat power um, and not you know there had to be a relationship between combat power and the warfighting functions, but that it wasn't going, it should not be just the sum of the warfighting functions. That there, that there, there should be a little bit more um, analytical rigor to the, you know, our combat power model as to how we were going to, and that's really what we kind of tried to get after within the book. Brian, how'd you get snagged into this? <laughs> so when I was brought on, um, we were looking at the different chapters and who can take a role uh, writing the different chapters. Uh, and I noticed that uh, we, we had the Trade Dog G2 listed for the different sections in the chapter to provide threat material. Uh, so understanding that I had a previous doctrine background, so I thought where I could fit in is I could be that lead integrator, that lead author for the threat material, which meant that I could talk with the Trade Act G2 be our single point of contact from CAD to the Trade Act G2. And that allowed me to reach out to Trade Act G2, have them provide us a thorough understanding of the threat. Uh, and that's, that's, that's how I, I saw my role, and, and that's what I volunteered for uh, when I joined the team. You actually expanded your role quite a bit, though, because you, I, speaking from the maritime chapter side of it, you provided a lot of insight and a lot of help with restructuring and kind of, of giving something more, something better, I think, to writing all of our chapters. It was, that's, it's valuable, not just the threat portion, not just limiting yourself. You, you worked quite a bit on everybody's, everybody's ends. Yeah, I would say too, um, uh, you, you made a, a, I mean, you took control of the um, armed conflict uh, chapter as well when we got kind of into the the weeds of um, adjudicating comments and that kind of stuff too. So I wouldn't. Uh, it was more. It was more than just threat for sure, but it was more than just a threat. Yes, there there was that supporting um, author on the other chapters, but uh, I wouldn't say what I did was different from what everybody else did because, as you pointed out, Tenor Carl Dean, when we started this uh, interview, was it was a team effort. We all uh, helped refine and make the chapters better. Um, so that was my, my contribution, which was similar to everyone else's contribution to the team. Yeah, and that's something that I've told people that as I've worked in this process, that I didn't expect how collaborative it would be. So even on things that had an assigned lead, it was incredibly iterative, it was incredibly team-based, much more so than anything else I've done in my Army career. So I enjoyed that aspect of it, that we all had a chance to contribute, look at, offer constructive criticism, and then sort of work together towards a solution. Well, and it began, so I think, obviously a book that lasts, or a writing effort that lasts over two and a half, almost three years actually, like you, you evolve through authors. So somebody will pick up a project and say, hey, I'm gonna, I'll help out with this portion. So my counterpart, though I typically work over in the command and control division, um, my counterpart there, Lieutenant Colonel Jesse Bell, is an artilleryman, and at the first start when, when Charles Schrankel, Chuck Schrankel, who has been in the podcast previously, said, hey, we're going we're gonna to be helping out with FM30. And oh, by the way, based on, for me, my background and experience in Indo-PACOM and then Jesse's experience in, uh, in Europe, you guys are going to help out with, these, with, the, with chapters that look at the maritime dynamic and the land dynamic. And that was, that was unique to be able to pick that up. And then also unique to be able to pick up things that were in our expertise or well in our wheelhouse. Like for me, the ability to write the principles of war and put that appendix back in was something that was, it was fulfilling. You know, first of all, fulfilling for doctrine because you're returning a principle back to, back to the books, but also to a certain extent, it's tapping into expertise that, well, yeah, of course we want to share that sort of stuff out with the rest of the army and see what they think. And, and on that, the, uh, so I mean, we never, we had not like walked away from the principles of war. Yeah. I mean, they, the principles of war have, 
have remained in our doctrine, but they were not up front in that. I mean, they were not, um, you know, they were just a list generally that was in our capstone doctrine. Um, And oftentimes we're just kind of then referred out to the joint doctrine. Um, What we, you know, when we, we brought the principles back into not just as a list within FM30, but then giving them an appendix where we expand out and discuss what their relevance is to, um, you know, the uh, multi-domain operations and how they, you know, they're immutable, so they, they are unchanging in some ways, but the character war changes, and so we had to update them. Um, and, you know, the you know, the same thing, you know, with, you know, the way we looked at the tenets of operations and the imperatives, um, the uh, elements of combat power. So all of those things, um, we kind of, we, we, we looked at, we didn't go, you know, uh, you know, clean slate with them, but we really kind of looked at them from a very foundational aspect and, uh, um, and tried to build them up and make sure that things were in the right place. So that everything, you know, all the big ideas were captured between the principles of war, the tenets, the imperatives, the operational framework. So those big ideas, um, you know, were all, you know, all worked together um, and were kind of mutually supporting. So that brings up a good point. There is there. There is some pushback a little bit, this idea that we literally repackaged airland battle because of things like returning to the dynamics of combat power and looking at that as a model um, because we we were bold and brought, you know, updated the tenants and then also brought imperatives back, which were something that we saw in the 86 version of airland battle. And folks are saying it's like, you know, this is leg warmers. You're just bringing back something that is old-fashioned. And it's like, well, but is it, though, if it... If it's the way that we built from history, if it's the way that we built from old doctrine that it was already tested, that was already known within our force, well, yeah, that's that seems to make sense that we we're not regurgitating something, we're re, we're revisiting something that we already knew to be true. What was it like to do that? Um, well, I think um, we had a good example of what. Um, creating a successful doctrine look like with airland battle so um and, and i think you know that those ideas on how to do that were kind of were laid down by um general vasta sega in a ausa land power essay in 2006 and he was comparing airland battle to the the new operations doctrine in 2006 but the, the kind of the principles of how to write a successful doctrine still apply and one of the things he said was um and there was that you have to learn how to recultivate old ideas so that as, as the strategic security environment evolves, old ideas kind of, it's kind of like, uh, you know, that plaid jacket that your grandfather had in 1972. You know, it comes back into style eventually. And, and, and old doctrine comes, kind of comes back into style, I think, periodically. Um, and so... Um, so we kind of took that as, and, and so we didn't copy a lot of uh, airland battle, but we took those ideas and we applied it to the new situation. Um, and you know, this idea that um, we're going to start integrating space and cyberspace capabilities just like we used to integrate, um, you know, air and land capabilities. Um, that that just made sense, and um, it made it easy to understand, but still. Um, a valid way of approaching, you know, operations. So one thing that began to occur, and this is, this is something that I have noticed or conversations on, on social media especially, and this is really for you, Brian, because you, you dealt so deeply with the threat, is this idea of uh, we have doctrine. It's, it's along a spectrum of, of being threat-focused versus being capabilities-focused, and somewhere in there is the current version of fm 30 what were your thoughts on how to balance the idea of introducing a threat? And ultimately, I think this has probably been, I don't want to say one of the more threat-focused, because when you think of Soviet-era doctrine, well, of course it was threat-focused. We had, a, we had the Soviets. They were big. Now you had to balance a lot of other threats and a lot of other experiences from the last 20 years. How did you see it? 
So we saw it as more threat focused, and, and that is tied directly to guidance that we received from Mr. Creed, who is the director for the Combined Arms Document Directorate. It was, we need to look at what's in the 2017 version of FM30, and then expound, provide more depth on that threat discussion. Uh, and when we did our analysis, looked at the 2017 version, um, and then looked at previous versions of FM30 or 100-5, the previous versions, and to name a two in particular, the 2008, the 2011 version, they discussed general trends. They didn't get into the specifics of the threat. What are those major threats that the Army is facing? And here are the different capabilities and actions that they can take. So what we did was continue the work that the writing team for the FM30 2017 version did and just expounded or expanded that material. It's kind of convenient too because we now we have the ATPs that are out focusing on several that are still coming out, focusing on the the major pacing threats that we're thinking about these days. They're that are in the news these days. Yes. And and going back, there are there's some similarities that we took with the twenty seventeen uh, version of FM three oh the similarities that the writing team took at that time. You know, we wanted to be as accurate as possible when we describe the strategic environment. We wanted to be accurate about what, who the threat was, what they could do. In addition, we, we wanted to continue that relationship, or we had to continue that relationship with the TRADOG-G2. Uh, we have established a very close relationship with, with them. Uh, so they provide us the analysis. Uh, they provide us the intelligence products. Um, when requested, they provide us written submissions to, to the doctrine. And for any submissions or for any draft material that we write, uh, we have them review it. But it was all tied to a, the 2017 version of F3O. That writing team started to really move our doctrine to more threat focus. And that's what we wanted to continue uh, during the development of this manual. You know, I, one of the lessons learned from the air land battle development, too, was um, the goal is to define the threat as precisely as possible. And then you, then you create an operational um, uh, approach that, is, uh, that solves that challenge that, that, that the threat poses. And back during the Cold War, there was one principal um, threat and one principal theater. Um, so the challenge for us was, is we don't just have that one kind of uh, singular threat. We really have a threat in Europe and we have a threat um, in the Pacific. And so, uh, you know, the doctrine had to account for both theaters and both threats. And so it loses, it, you know, in, in many people's opinion, it loses a degree of precision that would be more ideal. Um, and so that, I mean, I think that's part of the debate. That was part of the, the balancing act that we had to try and strike in the, in the doctrine. Yeah, there's also a balancing act, cause it, and I know I felt that tension myself, especially is everybody in this room is a GWAT veteran um, coming out of the global war on terror, out of you know, multiple tours to Afghanistan and Iraq, feeling like, wait a minute, we talk a lot about Russia and China in this book and that there is a lot of, of inference and there's there's references to the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict, there's references to Ukraine. What about, how do we address the rest of the, the threats that are out there below the radar? Also that are not, the, that are still pacing threats when you think about who we're in competition and how we can tip ourselves into crisis. But Jim, that was, those were your chapters. How did you, how did you first of all wrestle with this idea of competition and crisis before going into armed conflict, but also like the past 20 years of experiences. Yeah. And uh, before coming to CAD, I was one of the people that was concerned that we were moving too far away from uh, coin and regular warfare and things like that in an attempt to shift back potentially to what the Army wanted to do, not what we needed to do. And my experience in the last two years is that it's not the case for a couple reasons. Um, but one is that the existential threat potentially posed by a peer competitor 
is different from the uh, irregular warfare that we were conducting for 20 years and that you have to be ready for that most challenging threat. Something we tried to work into the book, and I hope it comes through in the competition and crisis chapters also, is that uh, these are not preludes for war. Competition is not peacetime. This is not as you're waiting to conduct operations, and it's not any more or less important than a regular warfare. It's a period in time. It's a context in which we conduct operations that you are, Army forces are achieving national objectives on behalf of Joint Force Commanders. It's not just an inevitable road to some sort of conflict against somebody else. So that was one of the key ideas we really tried to get in there, that most of our operations are conducted during competition, and these are times in which we're achieving objectives on behalf of the National Command Authority, not just waiting for something else. Uh, additionally, we also made sure that all of the experiences, the lessons learned, all of these ideas from 15 to 20 years of regular warfare in Iraq and Afghanistan didn't just go away. They've just been worked in in different ways into the chapters. So we talk uh, pretty extensively about setting the theater and its importance during competition, but also how it enables necessary operations in other contexts. And a lot of that language is really based on our experiences over the past 20 years. The irregular warfare books, too, those are, are now starting to come back into, into discussion, partly because lessons learned, the experiences that we've had, and it's time now, as FM30 has, has come out, to start relooking those books. So they're you know, the same pattern that we have right now for this book is gonna be repeated in the downstream manuals that feed us. And that's, people are wondering where all that stuff went. There's there's a large portion that is now gonna be captured in these books. So we don't have the same steep, unfortunate learning curve that some of us had when we were, when we were wee young lieutenants. Yeah. yeah, and that's a thing that we've had the opportunity to contribute to some of the initial kind of scoping of what that might look like as that process continues. And the discussions, the debates, all of the ideas we had about what made it into FM30 and what didn't, that will then inform ways in which we can do better with the irregular warfare doctrine that's going to be coming out. There's always that, that tension between concepts. You know, what goes into a book or how does something evolve and become doctrine? Because doctrine is the artifact. It's the best bad idea that we have at a moment in time with a force in being for a war we hope we never fight. But... But there is that, that idea that at some point we've got to evolve a new concept with our existing body of knowledge. Matt, that was kind of like where I saw a lot of the work that you were doing of, of bringing this thing, multi-domain battle that we talked about in like 2016-17 and bringing it into the book. How did that work out? Yeah, so 2016-2017, um, the, the, there was this uh, concept that came out called multi-domain battle. It was... Um, kind of evolved in the concepts world to multi-domain operations and published in a Tradoc pamphlet 525-3-1, I know it by heart, um, in uh, 2018. And, um, you know, that document drove a lot of um, uh, dot mil PF functions and, it you know, it identified the threat uh, posed by... Um, uh, principally China and Russia, but other um, nations that can also um, threaten the United States, and um, a solution. And, and you know, I would say, you know, 95% of the ideas that were in there uh, found its way into some place into the doctrine, and we had, and so a lot of the ideas came from that that document that that were in the doctrine. But there was no shortage of other people's ideas. So we were getting um, just senior leaders, uh, you know, sending us material that they thought was important to put in there. We um, f just from like academia and the defense, you know, industrial complex. Uh, th there were there were just literally hundreds and hundreds of inputs into the doctrine. So we started writing it, and there was lots of good pieces in there, but it wasn't. A cohesive whole and that was kind of one of the after the first couple of drafts we the, the feedback we kept getting was you've got to pull this pull this thing together and we were trying to do it. we were trying to figure out you know what the thing 
was going to be that, you know, tied the whole room together. And um, the rug that tied the room yeah, together. Yeah, the rug that tied the whole room together. And um, we weren't getting it. And then um, Mr. Creed wrote an email. I think this was in like June timeframe of 2021. And um, kind of like laying out, like get, trying to get all of CAD at least on the same sheet of music. And when we were talking about multi-domain operations, here were, the, here were the key ideas. And like, you know, three or four paragraphs down, kind of in the last sentence of a paragraph, he talked about this combined arms, uh, employing all of these capabilities, all available capabilities in a combined arms fashion. And we were kind of all in, the, in our office reading through this email. And Eric was like, he kind of gets out of the office. He's like, combined arms fashion. He's like, that's the thing. And so we were like, and then like the light, all these little light bulbs came on in the room. And we were like, yeah, that's it. That's the idea that's going to um, tie everything together. And all the other ideas sort of started coalescing very nicely around this combined arms uh, employment. And it became like, it was like the big toe. It was like the Sergeant Hulka of multi-domain operations. And we uh, um, very quickly, everything just started uh, becoming, we, we could put the logic together a lot easier. And the essence of that was that up to that point, we had basically been saying, you know, using the domains in complementary and reinforcing ways, using, you know, how, how you know, the land domain supports operation, you know, can uh, enable operations in the other four domains and how the other four domains enable operations on land. But and when we really th thought about it, what we're saying is using the domains in a combined arms fashion. Yeah. So combined arms employment of all Army and Joint capabilities. That was a very clean way without, you know, to define what multi-domain operations was without using multi or domain in the definition for multi-domain. And that yeah, was, one of, that was one of the challenges that we had too, is that you don't want to use the words to define themselves. You know, so what do we mean by that? And that combined arms fashion, you know, use of the domains in a combined arms fashion, um, kind of cleaned that up. And, and really kind of tied, pulled everything together, like Matt said. Yeah. Little did we know, the rug that pulled the room together is hiding out down in Mr. Creed's office. <laughs> as far as, as points of contention within the, the book itself, and we, as most people know, when you staff out to, to the wider army with an initial and a final draft, you get a lot of comments back. What were some of the big comments or some of the big friction points that the field had with the book that struck you guys most significantly? I would say, um, you know, the comments that um, came back all aligned, I would say, against really four traditional themes that are, uh, things in tension that have to get balanced. So art and the intangibles versus um, science and kind of the, me you know, mechanistic approach to warfare, that has to be balanced. Um, maneuver and attrition approaches have to be balanced. Um, and then you got to balance the old material, that m much of which is still valid, with the new stuff. So the, in, this, in, our, in this case, you know, how are we talking about cyberspace capabilities and space capabilities and things and, and ways of employment that are in, you know, within the realm of the possible? That has to be balanced. So the first draft I remember we did had very little about space and cyberspace and we got feedback and they were like you need to put space and cyberspace in there and then we swung the pendulum you know too far in that direction and we had a kind of and so each each um draft kind of helped push us closer to the right balance um and then the last one is offense and defense and you know it's always been a debate throughout doctrine if you go back and read all the mill review articles and things you'll see this like what you know in in the 1976 operations manual they said it was too defense too defensively focused and and you know 80 the 82 air land battle um you know made it more offensive minded okay but well is that the right balance now and so and, and, and it wasn't we needed to emphasize defense more and especially this idea of what forward postured forces are doing in the theaters that was really important so so that was the other thing thing that balanced. And so that, that was the feedback of the force kind of aligned against those things and helped us kind of get the right balance. 
Yeah, and the the depth of feedback is something I didn't expect before coming in here. So our initial draft, we got over 3,400 comments back on. On the final draft, we got over 2,200 comments back on. And that doesn't count the informal staffings, the various discussions, all those things. So for me, one of the earliest impacts I saw from that feedback was when we did the board with the retired general officers. I think it was kind of springtime 2021 or so. Yeah, that was before the initial draft was even staffed. Yeah. That was helping us, that helped us develop that initial draft yeah. for staffing. Mm-hmm. And, and there were some significant changes that came out of that. So that's where we took uh, the land chapter, Nikki, that you mentioned that uh, Colonel Bell was working on. And we worked that into the armed conflict chapter. Some of the things that I'd been working on, uh, I got really helpful feedback, which was <laughs> painful to hear, but useful, that I needed to narrow down some of the discussion to not have as much repetition and really focus on, on some of those key points and trying to get it concise, but still contain everything it contained before was a challenge, but one that really was helpful to me in the drafting process. Eric, what, what did you see that was notable from the, from the comments from the field? Like what, what was most valuable to you? I, I think some of the best comments that we got were the ones where it was clear that we were, it wasn't necessarily wanting us to change the material, but to make what we were trying to say more clear. And, you know, it, it was, you know, the, it's really frustrating when you get comments back that, you know, this isn't, you know, that basically are in essence of this is not right, but I don't have a recommendation to give you. Thank you for your interest in Army Doctrine. Yes. <laughs> um, but what that did help us really zero in on, you know, when we had numerous comments about a, certain, a specific paragraph or a, you know, specific section, you know, that uh, kind of were about that. Is it really, you know, even though we might not have had a lot from the comments to, to give us a direction that, that that often led to hours upon hours in the conference room of, okay, we need to rewrite this section um, or even a single paragraph because there's a lot of misunderstanding among, from the force as to what we're trying to get to here. And so it, it helps us really clarify you know some of the key ideas um, and the supporting arguments that that undermine you know that um, that uh, that help to describe you know in a broader sense some of those big ideas yeah usually when you get a lot of comments about one specific thing or you, you're getting comments that I don't understand this or this is not clear it's, it's an indicator that whoops it's time to go back and and either pull ourselves and the editors as well into the process How about you Brian yeah so what I found valuable uh, and this is goes back to your earlier question about the threat material. What was valuable for us was using the 2017 version as a base for the threat material. We knew that that was very tactically focused, especially if you look at Chapter 6, Chapter 7 of the 2017 version of FM30. We wanted to expand that and talk about what the threat does operationally. So having that feedback from the force as we worked with the TRADOC G2 to, to put in information about threat operationally was very helpful. We got comments back, you know, have you thought about this? Have you considered this? Uh, this is the way they fight. We think they fight operationally. So that made us go back and look at our analysis. Did we have this right? So that was very helpful. Uh, and one of the uncommon items that we got during staffing was uh, a couple of organizations had, had given us kudos for providing that, that operational level discussion, a little more depth on the threat material. So that was one thing that I thought was very valuable. Um, uh, and the other thing, so two other points about this is, one, we had to put the threat material in the context of competition, crisis, and armed conflict. Uh, and we knew we knew that our adversaries do not follow that same construct. So we had to look at what are those general activities that we may see from a threat during competition, during crisis. Uh, and we had a pretty idea of what they would do during armed conflict, but it was that competition and crisis. Again, this is where feedback from the field really helped us refine what was in those manuals. 
And the third thing that was very valuable for, for us was when the feedback that we got after Russia invaded Ukraine in February of 2022, uh, people were beginning to challenge the Russian material that we had in the manual. So that, again, that made a step back. Do we have everything accurate? And that led us to, can Tradoc G2, can you go back and revalidate all the material that we have on the Russia threat based on what we know and what we know is occurring in Ukraine now. And just to give you an example, um, we stressed or we emphasized in the book that you know Russia would attempt to achieve their strategic interest below the level of armed conflict. Uh, now we had stated in the manual that Russia would attempt to achieve their strategic interest below the threshold of armed conflict with the United States. But people were taking that as, you know, you, you're saying that they're not going to go into armed conflict when, you know, we see what's happening in Ukraine. And we had to go back and really try to emphasize that point that Russia would fight the United States differently than what we're seeing them fight in Ukraine against Ukrainian forces uh, currently. How much did, because there was a, a brief discussion in which a lot of people said we, you know, did we go back and, and re-examine given both the Nagorno-Karabakh conflict but also, but also operations in the Ukraine, how much did that influence any changes in the last minute aside from just the, the threat examination? Yeah, I think it was more, I don't know if it, we, we changed as much as we did, we maybe added some emphasis to things. And, um, and I would say, in general, um, our director, Mr. Creed, subjected the manual to the harshest criticism he could find. And the people that were the most vocal, that were making the best arguments about, and, and he you know, gave them early drafts and um, you know, people gave us feedback and, and we listened. And I think um, one of the areas we listened on was, you know, this emphasis that um, echelons matter. Divisions and core, he core headquarters matter. We see that playing out in Ukraine right now. Um, and so we added some emphasis on how do you integrate um, operations between echelons in the manual. And, um, and, and, and the force, uh, Key, you know, key commenters and, and, and uh, leaders in the force were asking us to kind of put a mark on the wall uh, for how to define roles and responsibilities of each echelon in terms of time, space, and purpose. And so, and so we did that. We put that in there as well. Um, so I think those were two key areas. Maybe a third one is the, in 2017, I mean, we talked about non-contiguous operations. I mean, that's been in doctrine for a long time. It wasn't explained in a lot of detail, and I don't think it was explained maybe just a sentence or so in 2017, but we, we added some material on um, non-contiguous operations and how to kind of uh, approach that, understand the risks and the, and the opportunities that, um, that doing that uh, kind of gives you. So those were, I think, some things. Yeah, and I, I think that, so some of the things that we, uh, we added additional emphasis on too was some of these intangibles of, of, of uh, that, you know, it, you know, the, it's, it was embedded within our operational environment model, five domains, and then these three dimensions, physical, information, and human, um, which we thought from what we were seeing of how, com you know, um, you know, how the recent conflicts, um, you know the that you know human human you know the that human will the will to fight still really matters. Um, we had that in there already, but like you know that the, we put some additional emphasis. You know the quality of the leadership um, really matters um, in a fight, but also you know that physical, you know, things that are physically happening on the battlefield still matter too. So you can have, you know, um, you can have the best narrative in the world, but if it doesn't match up with the facts on the ground, you know, if your narrative is, we are, you know, we are going, you know, you know, we're going to cause 
Kiev to capitulate, but your forces are being destroyed before they can get there. Um, it really, the fact, you know, it doesn't match up. So, you know, but all, at the same time, if you're, if the infant, you know, if you are um, using uh, information to your advantage very well, um, it can also have a uh, enabling effect. So all three of these things matter: physical information, human. There's no, they're they're not. There's not one that's more important or less important. They they all intertwine, and so we we put some additional, um, you know, emphasis on on that as to how what we were seeing going on. Um, you know, and how the physical information and, and human really work together, you know, and the effects that can be felt um, within each of those dimensions matter a lot. Uh, and so, th th again, this was, we thought we had the big ideas right based on what we were saw, and if we didn't, we would have changed, you know, we were, we were certainly willing to change it, but we definitely put additional emphasis on things that were like, okay, this is clearly, you know, you know something that we are we're going in the right direction on so let's 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 kind of add some additional clarity based on what we're seeing i think the risk overall when you have something like that and it's you know ukraine is a shiny object for the for the moment which is it's drawing a lot of attention because a lot of people are getting a chance to see armed conflict large scale and in, in, in a new light but the truth be told the fear i think a lot of people have is that it becomes a 10 pound weight around our neck. And we almost treat it then like, like a 73 conflict, you know, or Arab-Israeli conflict that, that ultimately drove a lot of concern and fear within, within mechanized and armor communities about is our doctrine appropriate? And it, it stimulated a conversation. I think that there is going to be coming out of this in the next few months, probably some good detailed feedback from the field and maybe even some critical feedback, which, like, that's one thing that I genuinely, I don't want to say that I, you know, everybody wants to be proven wrong, but it's nice to get feedback from, from subject matter experts in the Army to say, you kind of got it right, or you need to look at something more, something deeper. Yeah, uh, great, great points. Um, the, uh, what we didn't want to do was jump to conclusions based on things that we might not know the full story on from you know from russia ukraine confirmation so, bias is a hell of a yeah, drug confirmation you know we you know is this a is this a true validated lesson learned or is this just maybe initial reports from a very one-sided perspective um you know so you know we don't know what you know the the actual objectives of you know russia were um, you know, and uh, it's it's really easy to jump to conclusions based on things that we're seeing in open source reporting that could be biased, you know, um, um, to one side or the other. And so getting, you know, you, we want to, you know, so there will certainly be things and lessons learned that we pull out of um, an actual full, fully fleshed out analysis of things that are happening there as far as how what their impacts are on the character warfare and you know, you know, and that's going to feed into this debate on things that we got right and things that we got wrong within FM3O. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's great because if FM3O is at least, you know, if it can be the thing that causes us to have the right debates about the right things so that the next version can be that, you know, can be that much better then, you know, even if we got it wrong in this version, um, I think we got, you know, I think we got most, most things, you know, pretty close. Um, but that dialogue across our army, um, you know, in the larger force as well, is what's really important to drive future um, evolutions of our doctrine so that, you know, each iteration can just be that much more... Um, better more better yeah um, i think i think our job at, in cad is our, our first job is to listen <laughs> and you know I listen say, without um ego that's what made yeah. i 
you know, there's always that reference of brand new FM 3.0 comes out, so therefore it's, you know, hey, it's Don Starry and the Boathouse Gang again, and it's like, well, yeah, sort of, but I think now more than ever, given the fact that there is so much opportunity for folks to participate as doctrine authors, for folks to participate in the editorial process through through military journals, uh, to publish online, everything, that it offers more people to be involved in a new coming of the Boathouse Gang. And if it stems a new Leavenworth heresy, I'm, I'm all for it. Granted, by that time I will be retired, but what does it matter, so. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, you know. Yeah, there's like five. Um, there's, there is no, man, at this version of FM 3.0 is not the end of doctrine, um, nor will the next version. Um, and we are, you know, uh, if we got something wrong, um, we will be the first that uh, admits it and starts to, uh, you know, change it and change one or um, the next revision of FM 3.0 as, you know, that we're already kind of thinking about things that, you know what can we what can we make better in this? Yeah. I think the only other thing that was kind of what do we know is out there? What do we feel like is going to become a new change that we as authors can see coming down the pike? Are there any books that are going to have that are going to have direct impact or are going to suffer a direct impact because of what we've done? I know one for me in particular. Well, I, we we've already kind of talked about, and some of this, that some of this um, writing and understanding might drive changes in future in a future version of FM three O. But um, the uh, the core the the core operations book is coming out not too long from now. The division operations book ATP you know, core being ATP three ninety two, um, ATP three ninety one. The division operations book is going through a heavy revision right now um, for publication later next year. Um, and then the BCT and, and tactical, you know, more tactically focused, lower tactically focused manuals as well. And all of those kind of, they all have to be, you know, this integration across echelons. So we got to get it right in the capstone, you know, as far as the, you know, in FM 3.0 as far as the big ideas. But all of the, you know, all of these publications have to be kind of, rewritten with an idea of how does the core support the division, how does the division support the the BCTs, and how did the BCT support the division and the division support the core? Because it's all integrated and you have to have that holistic, um, you know, because no one echelon is, you know, can do it all. They all have a, you know, their proper roles across, you know, like um, Matt said, across time, space, purpose, you know, who, you know, you know, they don't. You know what fo- what domains they're focused on, what capabilities they're focused on, um, and I think that's a huge um, is is going to be a huge deal for our army as how we get that right, and that's going to be an iterative and evolutionary process as well as we go through it. It's you know, the writing of one book is going to impact their you know the ideas and writing of other books. Jim, what do you think about what what doctrine is going to become? you think most hot and heavy as we get ready to rewrite? Well, a couple of things we've talked about are the uh, ADP and FM 390 of the tactics manuals. As they've been working on those downstairs, uh, we've been tied in with them. But as they finish their development process, that in turn will impact things that we're going to need to go back and revisit. But the biggest one we've talked about is ADP 313 information. Uh-huh. And uh, when that gets resolved, uh, being optimistic, it will be resolved. When it gets resolved, we're going to need to incorporate some of those ideas that, I mean, across the force are being hammered out right now. Yeah, so I can speak from, from my coworkers who work over in the, the C2 section and are spearheading some of the work that is being done on the information book, ADP 313, future. The, uh, it's, it was already begun as an incorporation with, because we did a partnered writing between the FM30, it was primarily Mike Flynn, who's also been on the podcast previously and then uh, working in partnership with the writing team to make sure that 3.0 and 3.13 were developed cooperatively not necessarily one will have to drive a change in the other Matt what do you think um, what book are you keeping yeah so I, like, I think um, especially for the brigade the battalion the company level manuals 
they're going to have to wrestle with um, dis dispersion and, and the overall protection challenge, counter UAS, um, uh, electromagnetic signature masking, um, and, and how to do that um, without um, creating too much risk to your mission. And we had a, a retired GO um, kind of made a comment I saw in an email, and he, he said he didn't really like the term dispersion because it seemed too random. Right? You don't just disperse, randomly disperse, and then um, that doesn't set you up for success when you have to concentrate your forces a little bit to you know, cross the, cross, do the river crossing. Um, he liked the term distributed more because it implied a kind of more deliberate approach to how you array your forces. And so I thought that was a, a good comment, and, um, and I, I hope that when the, um, you know, this, the other manuals are, are working on their material, they, they account for that kind of deliberate approach to being dispersed. I think that's going to be, and it's going to be tough. It's not, it's not, there's no easy answer to it. Yeah, as you, as you disperse, you make sustainment and command and control that much more difficult. It makes massing of effects that much more difficult. Um, and con you know, so, uh, but it is an element of protection uh, and how you, you know, we have to operate on a, 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 a battlefield that's going to have the high lethality that, that we anticipate would be seen in large-scale combat operations against a peer threat that has massed and precision fires that they can bring to bear. Everybody's doctrine is going to get a piece of, of having that experience of trying to account for, for things that are different, and it's going to require some creative, talented writers and thinkers to come into and to pick up and start filling in these gaps and revising. If for me, I think the biggest one that I've noticed is, first of all, aside from because Jimmy brought up the idea of the information stuff, but also how this works with our, our command post doctrine. So planning doctrine that we have with FM50, and then also the, the CP doctrine, which focuses in FM60, and then also the ATPs that fall out from that, that focus on the command posts themselves. This, this is going to change the way, or not change, but force us to start re-looking to make sure that when we account for these these known things that we do so with with offering the right recommendations the right considerations to readers in the future and then the other thing i noticed like right off the bat and i'm saying this from you know the author of the water chapter like we don't have amphibious doctrine anymore it's a it's a gap it went away in the 1970s you know, our last versions of it were 1960s and 70s in the 31-10, 11-12 series. And then after that, like, the army that had 22 divisions in World War II conducting amphibious operations, amphibious landings, uh, joint forcible entry, like, that's, that is, needs to be revisited and needs to be brought out. There was a podcast that came out on SimSec uh, with Major Matthew Graham, who's a student over at SAMS, bringing up the idea that tanks in the surf, it's, it's going to require us to, to tap into the expertise and knowledge of the United States Marine Corps and to ask them, all right, so amphibious landings with tanks, how do we, how do we talk about this and seeing the Marines divested of their armor capability? If we're the force of endurance, now we have to start taking on the roles and responsibilities in a, in a maritime dominant environment that are gonna require us to think, down at the maneuver center especially, about how maneuver doctrine works on, works on islands. Yeah. It works on islands and works with water. So it's, it's an interesting time to be a doctrine writer in, in the United States Army and in a joint community. Yeah. I think and, those are, go ahead. And, and as we lay out within, within that chapter seven, you know, we need to be thinking, um, you know, in that type of environment, we, we very likely, the, the army or the land component, um, the army force could easily, could likely be a um, supporting component to the others. Mm -hmm. And how do we as the land force best, um, you know, enable joint operations you know, and there's a lot of things that we can offer there, 
some of which we have not probably even fully like you know thought thought through as to uh, you know um, the capabilities that we can contribute to the joint force um, when it comes to you know control of air and control of maritime um, not not so for our own ends but you know control of a maritime AO to enable um, the maritime component to better do you know it's you know uh, achieve its objectives in a you know in, in another AO for instance or the same for the air and how how is the land force and land component can we you know enable that that to happen we have to kind of think through and be the you know we're used to being the supported command now we need to uh, think you know how you know how can we best support uh, the other components you know in that type of environment um, and not you know uh, not sit on our laurels and and, and uh, um. <laughs> not tip over Guam yeah not yeah exactly um, you know there, there's Sorry, a lot of things we can joke. contribute that we need to but that, that needs to be thought through um, from a holistic aspect you know yeah. and we need to help the joint force understand what we can contribute to that and, and I think that mindset applies um, very broadly um, and we try to emphasize this in FM30 I mean every unit leaders should be should be thinking okay what capabilities do I need or that or, or, or could be helpful in my in my ability to accomplish my mission and then but also what does what capability am I bringing to the table that's going to enable somebody else and what are the what are all the complementary and reinforcing ways in which my unit can be can be employed and so I think that's that's a key that's a key yeah. aspect of FM3O it and always we, comes we, back to combined arms yeah. <laughs> yeah it comes back to combined arms and uh you know, we only we we were not able to, you know, flesh that out in a you know a, a full way. So I mean, if the, in a future in future versions of FM three O, that idea um, is something that we will, you know, likely need to expand on um, as we work with the joint force, um, you know, and and potentially then feed that into also into joint doctrine, um, to ensure that they you know that. Uh, those capabilities are fully appreciated. Gentlemen, I can't thank you enough for coming on today and talking, you know, having an exchange about the experiences that we had over the past two and a half years to develop this book. Um, it's greatly appreciated, and I'm hoping that the audience also got some insight into what it means to be a doctrine writer and to actually write a book, which is not an easy task at all. If you're interested in finding out more information about FM3O and interested in seeing FM3O itself, you can go to the Army Publisher Directorate website where FM3O and all the supporting doctrine is available for download. Here on the team for FM3O, I'd be remiss if we didn't actually thank a handful of individuals that were out there that provided some subject matter expertise. Between the crew of us, we determined that it takes a lot to be able to to go through and provide feedback on a book that takes a lot to write. Um, we might not get everybody, but we'd like to say a special thank you to Lieutenant General's retired Holder and Mike Lundy, to Dave Johnson, Jim Greer, Kevin Benson, Dr. Grau, and Dr. Bartles. And also, I'd like to say a personal thank you to the Krulak Center and to Lieutenant Colonel Travis Horde for inputs and assistance and a little bit of insight into what it means to be in the United States Marine Corps without an armor capability. I'd also like to say thank you to the Land Warfare Center Sergeant Major Paul Burns, who provided insight and feedback on the development and the relook of the principles of war and how to pull them back into the manual itself. Any other people, gentlemen, that you think we should shout out for their great help? Aside from the entire United States Army that provided feedback on the book. Yeah, I'd say specifically the Army North G5 team did a ton of work on the contested deployments ideas. I mean, we could not have written that without them. And Major John Holland specifically, who previously worked there and then came over to Leavenworth, did outstanding work with that. So they were uh, essential to that part of the book. Big thank you to Indo-PACOM for providing feedback on, and USARPAC for providing feedback on chapter and maritime operations as well. Yeah, and I, I will give one, one organization, I'd like to name one organization. Um, the 
Intelligence Center of Excellence provide us great feedback on how we incorporate uh, the intelligence warfighting function into the manual. Uh, and they worked with us very closely uh, as we wrote the different uh, sections in each one of the chapters. So that was, that was very helpful. Just like writing new doctrine is a team effort, breaking doctrine is also a team. Without a crew and special doctrine here at CAD, we wouldn't be able to bring you this show. Our production is coordinated by Mr. Ted Crisco, and our editing and sound is provided by Captain Wyatt Harper. Please don't forget to subscribe to either Google or Apple Podcasts, and follow us on social media at U.S. Army Doctrine to get updates about new podcasts, Doctrine Digest videos, and, of course, publications. Finally, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the official position of the United States Army, the U.S. Army Training and Doctrine Command, or the Combined Arms Center. I'm Lieutenant Colonel Nikki Dean, and this has been my last breaking doctrine as a Lieutenant Colonel. Next time you hear this, I'll be retired and hoping that there's somebody else out there that will do a little bit of doctrine writing as well.